Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Good morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Renton Rathbun. And um, if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, we are going to begin, I believe it's a three-week series on the resurrection. We're going to begin with Philippians chapter 3. Also, I want to make sure you understand that it won't be me doing all three. I don't want to scare you or panic you. You'll have to suffer through me once. If you would turn to uh, Philippians 3, we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things are gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But more than that, I count them I count all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, rubbish, so that I gain Christ and may be found in him, have, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you And we think on who you are as our God. You are a God of power. And we sit in amazement of that, that we are able to be affected by that power, Lord. But it is your power. You are a God that we can't even understand in your greatness. But we are affected by your work in us, Lord. We thank you for that and we pray for your wisdom over what we uh, look at in your scriptures and that our hearts will bow before 
what your spirit has to say to us, Lord. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Um, I have a job. It's kind of weird. Uh, but uh, I work at a, at a press, at, uh, actually Bob Jones University Press, and we are making a, uh, a new line of Bible textbooks for first through third graders. And uh, in those textbooks, we are going through 147 catechisms that they will learn by the time they're done with their third grade year. Um, and what's interesting is that my job is to try and help them have a biblical worldview as they learn these catechisms. So typically, you know, when you're learning something like chemistry, you try to see chemistry through the eyes of Scripture. Now we're trying to make them learn something about Scripture and see the world through that. So our first catechism that we teach them is probably one you're very familiar with. It is, uh, it is who made me? Does anyone know the answer to that? God made me, that's right. He knew it. God made me, that's right. And so as they look out into the world, my job is to ask, well, what are they looking for when they ask that question? Who made me? God made me. What else did God make? God made all things. They're really asking what's real, right? But you can't ask a first grader what's real. They may not know exactly what you're saying. So we kind of broke it down into this one phrase that we think first graders might understand. And it's this phrase. What is the most important thing? And that seems kind of simple. Maybe to us adults we might think it's a little trite. But when you think about it, it comes down to that Really simple question, what is the most important thing? I guess the most important thing would be the thing that if you know that thing, everything else makes sense. And uh, as we look at, uh, at, this, uh, at these verses, my question is to us, do we know the most important thing? And I don't mean on a quiz, because all of us are good at quizzes. Especially at, uh, at church, when someone asks you what the most important thing is, well, you know the answer to that. But I wonder if we really understand what that means. Do we really have an understanding that we expect out of our first graders? Um, I think Paul um, is trying to communicate that I don't think we do understand as well as a first grader might. Because it starts with this. He asks this question. Or he doesn't ask a question, he gives this command. The command is, rejoice in the Lord. Then he starts talking about dogs and being, being, you know, beware of the dogs. You're like, well, I thought we were supposed to rejoice in the Lord. What's that have to do with anything? Are these verses disconnected or something? But what he's doing here is he's going to tell us what it means to rejoice in the Lord. So he begins with saying, beware of the dogs. Now, these dogs are people that are in the religious religion business, deep into the religion business. In fact, so deep into it that they believe that what they're doing is God's work. The dogs, the evil workers, the false circumcision. Some people say that's talking all about the same group of people, probably the Pharisees. Whatever it is, it's the religious leaders. As we go through this and work our way down, what I want to do 
is I want us to try and see what the main idea here is. And uh, without making it too much of a Bible study, I want to see the flow of the logic and how it gets to that one thing that we're supposed to understand from, the, from this passage. So he starts with these dogs. And notice the language there. Uh, he calls them dogs. That's a, that was a very rough way of talking. Um, on Facebook, you'd probably be uh, abused for saying such horrible things about uh, people that are trying to do their best in the religious world, and you just use these names. Um, he even calls them the false circumcision, which if you look at the Greek, is really talking about mutilation. So he's even using more harsh words. He's not a kinder, gentler type of uh, theologian. He seems passionate about what kind of people these men are. And he says what makes them this way is that they're putting confidence in the flesh. And so he goes through this, this line of thinking about his confidence. He says, I could have confidence in the flesh. If anyone wants to have confidence in the flesh, it could be me. So he goes through this list. He says he had the right sacrament, right? He, he was circumcised and at the right time on the eighth day. Um, he had the correct lineage, right? The right pedigree. Uh, as to the law, he was a conservative, right? While you have all these other people that are saying don't believe in the law, you had the Pharisees that were saying, no, we need to believe in the law. They were the conservatives. They were, I can put it in our terms, they were like the uh, Republicans, right? They were the people that said, we've got to have law. We've got to stick to the law. I'm not trying to make this uh, political. I'm just saying, these, weren't, uh, these were the people we sh- the, that people today would probably think, yeah, that's good Christianity right there. Um, as to righteousness, found blameless. Now, he could have counted all this as confidence that he could say what he wanted to say through these things. This, was his, this could have been his confidence in these things that made him important. And isn't that the way things are today in the religious world? Where did you get your degree? What seminary did you go to? Are you, uh, are you familiar with blah, blah, blah-ism? And have you uh, really studied the uh, intricate details of... And then they start naming these... Bizarre people, maybe even Dutch people, and you're like, wow, this guy really has a lot of knowledge. He must be pretty important. Uh, so, and, we, and we start thinking these things, and they, they, this their qualifications, right? We are, it tends to happen, you know, especially, especially when you get to seminaries, your Facebook starts turning a lot more into a, uh, into a Vita than it does anything, uh, you know, resume type thing. Um... And he says, as he starts going down this list of stuff, he immediately calls it, whatever things I might count as gain to me, my resume, which was really good, where I would have the authority on, based on that resume, right? And he might have even been well-known. I mean, that almost trumps everything. You almost don't even need a degree anymore if you're well-known. I mean, if you have a well-established uh, person that maybe read a few books and people liked what you say or how you said it, you don't even have to go to seminary anymore. They'll make you a pastor and you can do whatever you want and everyone will love you. And maybe that's even part of that, 
that system that Paul's even speaking of there. But he says, all this that could be gained to me if I put my confidence in the flesh, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not knowing about him and all the intricate details of it that you might get through a systematic theology book that you may have memorized and, and, and compared to other systematic theology books and maybe even wrote your own systematic theology book. He's talking about knowing Christ on an intimate level and knowing who he is as he works in him. And he says the rest is lost. Now I want, right now we're all agreeing with that because we're good Christians and we think, yep, yep, everything is lost, surpassing value of Christ, we get all that. But I want you to understand what he is saying is counted as loss. He's saying the pedigree that he had, the circumcision on the eighth day, his learning, all the knowledge he had of the law and of the scriptures that could be counted to him because he was a Pharisee. He's counting as loss. Now, if some of you were seminary students in here, you might say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, we can't count you know, the knowledge that we're getting from seminary as loss because then you're learning about God, and so that's okay. Uh, we can keep that. And he's saying, I count it all loss. Even my pedigree, even the, the exactness of my theology and the incredible knowledge and precision I had in my theology that made me stand above everybody else in my knowledge and my understanding and my setting as to who I was, all of it to know Christ, Jesus, my Lord. Uh, I grew up um, a, uh, a Baptist, but not just any kind of Baptist. Uh, I grew up a fundamentalist uh, in the fundamentalist world. Um, that's probably an old word to you uh, today. Maybe some of you have no idea what I'm saying, because um, now that has more to do with Islam, I guess. But uh, back in the day, uh, fundamentalism was uh, very strong. Um, it had the idea, it started out as a kind of, I, th I think it started out as a pretty good idea. I mean, in the early 19th century, you had a lot of liberals, and everyone said, hey, what are the fundamentals? What are the bare essentials that we can say, if you believe these things, we can be brothers, and we can worship together, and we can be together, and we can ask each other for advice, and we can even go to... Uh, maybe even have some kind of authority over each other uh, because of these fundamentals. And, um, and it started really working well. Um, you had Presbyterians and uh, Baptists and uh, Congregationalists and all kinds of different people coming together that agreed on these fundamental things. And then one day someone said, this is working too well, let's add one. <laughs> so they added uh, 
some, uh, com- some complexity about end times, and uh, then it just became Baptists. Now, I don't say that to, to be mean to any denomination. What I'm saying is, at that point, the theology became a club. And instead of seeing the church as a big thing that has a lot of different parts to it, that's bigger than our building and bigger than America, it's this big thing that God is, is working with. Especially as Reformed people where we understand Scripture speaking about one people with one shepherd. And we get this information from one book, one whole book that isn't split down the middle, that has a big gap between it, but is one full book about Christ our Lord. We should get this better than anybody. But I have found in my experience anyway that a lot of times we like clubs. In fact, we like our clubs so much that the precision of our theology gets super precise, which is great. But then, if someone isn't as precise, then our club can't be as cool or as, as precise as we want it. And then what do we do with these people that are not as precise? I think there's some... There's something we can learn when we talk when Paul is saying that I count it but loss. And I gotta walk a tight line here. I'm I'm coming before you as someone that that is that has had the education. I mean, I get that precision in theology is super important. I've lived that that life. I'm still working on my dissertation, so I get it. It's horrible uh, how difficult that this can be. But I fear that we do not count everything as loss. That sometimes the precision that we want becomes the goal. And Christ not so much. I bring this out because this is all funneling down to this one thing that this whole chapter is really talking about. And that's the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Because everything after that is really expanding on what that means. Everything before it is leading us to it. So what we're getting from this passage, the main idea from this passage is that Jesus Christ our Lord has surpassing value. And as we start getting closer to what this means, what we see is this is expanded into what this what we're talking about. So Christ Jesus our Lord is, is of surpassing value. And then he, he qualifies that. I'm in him. And from, this, and from Christ is the one I received his righteousness on the basis of faith. So he's qualifying what he's talking about. And then he says about the surpassing uh, knowing Christ, the value of knowing Christ is that he may know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. And then he qualifies that fellowship of sufferings, nor that, uh, which is 
being conformed to his death. Well, why are we talking about being conformed to the death of Christ? Because he is, by any means possible, he wants that resurrection at the end. Or that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And this is where I really wanted to concentrate on what we're talking about when we're talking about the power of the resurrection. I became a little obsessed with this because oftentimes I'll hear this through different messages. People will say it. And I'm thinking, well, what does that mean? What does power of the resurrection mean? What is that? I mean, isn't that curious to you? I mean, he's saying that we can know, and I don't mean knowledge, I mean we can know it as in there's something in our experience of the power of the resurrection. So I started uh, investigating this. Uh, First on a creaturely level, right? Because that's how we, we know things. I mean, if you look at the, the Greek term, power, uh, the Greek word there is dunamis. It's usually the first Greek word most seminary students learn. Uh, because it's easy to remember because dunamis is where we get our word dynamite. Um, and dynamite is pretty powerful. But it's really not powerful because really what we're talking about, because I really did some stuff on this. I was really interested. You've got to understand. This really fascinated me. So I went to someone who uh, understands science better than me. And I know this is creaturely, but that's how we start. We're creatures, so we've got to start creaturely. What do we mean by power? Just on earth, what does it mean? I don't even think we have a good understanding of that, let alone what it might mean in Scripture. So I asked someone who deals with science, So is there a difference between energy and power? Because like with a stick of dynamite, when it explodes, that's an incredible amount of energy. But is that what power is? So then I learned this huge thing about the difference between energy and power. I mean, energy, you have have, um, atoms that might be moving really fast. Sometimes electrons are transferred to other atoms. Or sometimes, if you want nuclear uh, power, then you have... uh, uh, protons going to other uh, atoms, and it's a mess. But power is different than that. It starts with what we call work. Now, work is when you take um, is when you take uh, this force. Okay, you know what force is, and you and you times it by distance. So when I was a little kid, I used to watch these uh, kung fu movies. On Saturday afternoons, back when TVs weren't apps and you had to watch what was there. But it was cool because, you know, it was Bruce Lee and all that sort of thing. And they had the, the, the coolest thing was when they showed some, one, of the, one of the guys, they'd put their fist just a few, a few inches away from something, and then they'd just power through. And it's like just very short distance. They're able to, you know, crush a tree in half or whatever. And uh, that kind of shows you some incredible energy, right? Because the distance is very short, but it's still be able to get a lot of force behind it. That's work. Well, power brings in time. So the shorter amount of time you have and the greater amount of work you have, you have this incredible power. I can only describe it like this, because this is how I think. Uh, guns. Uh, when I was uh, in the military, I was, uh, I was given charge of a, 
M16A2 rifle. Probably wasn't the smartest thing the military ever did, but uh, I had it in my hands, and I shot it a few times. Uh, It's an incredible work of power because you have less than two feet between where where the bullet is and the firing pin hitting it, and less, in less than two feet, that thing's already going over 3,000 uh, feet per second. That's incredible. I mean, you got something going from zero to 3,000 feet per second in less than two feet? That's amazing. And then in time. So now power takes in this idea of time. It's controlling all this energy and focusing it on one thing in a very small amount of time, you have an incredible amount of activity. So the bullet, within, within less than a second, goes from zero to 3,000 feet per second in like that, as fast as you can pull that baby back. It's incredible. That's power, and that's a creaturely way, right? It's not just energy uncontrolled. It's not just this... This amazing thing. It's this focused, intentional, controlled power. And so I then I thought about well, what does that mean in these terms? The power of the resurrection. And you have compared in Ephesians that the same power that was used to raise Christ from the dead. Now listen to this. This is, this is incredible. The same power that was used to raise Christ from the dead is the exact same power that will be used to raise you from the dead at the end. When Christ comes again and the dead are raised, your body will be resurrected with the same power that was used for Christ himself. What does that mean? I mean, it's incredible. I mean, really, I'm not really bringing you to an exact answer. I'm really just trying to get you to understand how, how incredible this is so we just kind of burst out in doxology, right? You just don't know what to do with it all. It's how we rejoice in the Lord. And then I thought about this. Uh, one thing you learn is that uh, when you're going through seminary is that... Uh, you have to make a difference between how God knows something and how we know something. Because what you learn is that God's knowledge is equal to himself, so if you know something the exact same way God does, then you are God. We know that can't be right. So we know that God condescended to us. Um, It's kind of like when we have a lot of beautiful little kids around here, and you, you you get down on their level, and you talk simply to them, right? It's a representation of what's going on in your head. What's going on in your head is a lot different than what you're saying, right? You make things as simple and as easy as you can. You don't walk around on your, on your knees. It's a way of accommodating to children so that they can understand. And God accommodates us so that we can understand and have communion with him so that we know whatever we whatever we can know about God is a creaturely way of us knowing him. But what about the power? Now, we'll have creaturely ways of knowing about his power, so we'll never really understand it the way it really is. 
But I wondered, is God's power being used on us in a way that does not need to be so condescended like language does and like thought does? This power is an intimate power where God is using his work on us in a way that we can't even understand because it's beyond understanding. Even his peace is beyond understanding. How could we understand his power and how close that is to him? You realize the closer we get to God's very being, the less we can possibly fathom it. So when we talk about that resurrection power, we're talking about an intimate work of God on us. That involves not just your resurrection from the dead physically, but your resurrection from the dead spiritually. And that constant resurrection power that maintains your life in Christ. It is a fascinating but exciting thing. And it makes us want to rejoice in the Lord. Because we're not coming to a conclusion of we've figured it out. We're coming to the conclusion that it's so intimate and so amazing and so powerful that we can't even really talk about it without just glorifying God. But what does this mean? Because this power works in us. It has made us alive in Christ. And so what does this mean for our day-to-day lives? It means for us adults that we're not stuck. It means for us men that as we fail to lead our wives, as we have been more afraid of them than we have been loving them, there is hope because we don't have to rely on our failures, on our strength, on our weakness. We have resurrection power that maintains our life in Christ. That those of us that are afraid of our children and want to please them instead of pleasing God, it's never too late. It means that our lives can be reordered no matter how much chaos has occurred because God's power is not just a giant explosion, it is controlled power that is intimate And gives you strength to do his will in a way you could never have before. And this power does something else. When Christ raised us from the dead, we became something else. When you are in Adam, maybe you've heard of that phrase, being in Adam. Oftentimes, maybe we talk about that phrase too metaphorically, as if there were just some papers somewhere that said you are under Adam and God ripped up those papers 
and uh, now put new papers down that you are in Christ now. And nothing really happened to you, you just have new papers, and uh, you're set. But Scripture is very clear that you are a new creation. Something foundational happened to you that you are in Christ now. Your identity has changed. Your identity is in Christ. So I want to talk just a second to the young people in this auditorium. For those of you that uh, might listen to sermons and you think, I hope these adults are listening because I'm really bored right now. (laughs) I want you to think about this. If Christ has given, if Christ has used resurrection power and you have a new identity, stop trying to be so special. We have this idea, especially young people, we're trying to look for an identity. We, may, we might find it in our favorite music that may, might make us feel cool. We might see someone on TV that looked cool, so we want to act like them. We hear something that sounded cool, and we want to be like that, because really, when it comes right down to it, a lot of times we just want to be different and special in a really cool way. And when people start talking about Christ, and people start talking about the identity in Christ, we start thinking about, ah, it's boring. That's that stuff that the adults do, and they're into all that, but I want to be cool. And maybe we don't even use the word cool anymore. You just put in the blank whatever's, whatever new is going on out there. But uh, I'm an old man, I don't know. Um, but I think our... I've told this to, to my son and to classes I've taught. When we talk about music... Uh, when I was growing up, we had a guy come and he would take rock music and he'd play it backwards. <laughs> he'd convince us that, that was, they were saying something. And we're like, oh, okay, that's bad. Because I guess it was safer just to listen to the song and not play it backwards like I guess he thought we were doing. Um, but uh, <laughs> I don't know what that was about. But um, I think the most dangerous thing about music And I know that lyrics can be bad, and I I understand all that. But I think even more dangerous than the lyrics, uh, if they are bad, is what are young people thinking about when they listen to music? Whether it's Christian or secular, whatever it is, are they focused on themselves? Are they thinking about themselves and what makes them cool and what glorifies them? Are they meditating on themselves? as they listen to the music. Because I think we are... We think that the flesh will make us happy. We really do. And that goes not just for young people, but it goes for us too. As adults. On a quiz, if someone said, will this, will everything here in this world make you happy? We would, we would say no, because we're great at quizzes. But we don't believe it sometimes, right? 
We really do believe if our club is exactly the way it should theologically and I am the one that gets to kind of lead that club, then I'm cool and that will make me happy. If I can just accomplish this in my career to get this done so we can have this, then we'll be set. If my wife would start acting this way or do this for me, I would be happy. If my husband would just start being this instead of what he is now, then I'd be happy. And our confidence is constantly in the flesh. What we find all through Philippians that Paul is saying, imitate Christ. Imitate Christ. And if I can say some, one more thing to you young people, I think, growing up, I think the adults made some mistakes in communicating what Jesus is like. For me, anyway. Because growing up, as I saw pictures of Jesus, he was this effeminate-looking, androgynous man, um, when people would describe Jesus, it was always this kind of, you know, he, he just loves peace, and he's just, he's just I mean, it just, it just seemed so effeminate to me. I just didn't, was it, I, I didn't know why I would want to be like that. And you young people in this room have a very unusual situation where you are surrounded by men who understand what it means to be men. You have been communicated uh, to well about Christ. And we sit and we still think that, no, I don't want to imitate him because there's something cooler out there. There's something better. There's something that will make me happy. And we still believe that this imitation of Christ will not lead to rejoicing. It's the lie that uh, Satan uses. It's a lie that's worked for a long time. The lie that just keeps you moving a little further down the road where if Satan can just convince you that one more thing might be the thing that does it and once you get that, that one more step can get you to that happiness you think is there And he just keeps on taking you and taking you and taking you. And as you get everything that you think you want, there's nothing there. It's anti-covenant. Because Satan is promising you what he knows is not there. And my prayer for you is my prayer for me as I constantly fail. As I constantly put my confidence in the flesh and have to be reminded over and over that I'm a giant hypocrite as I stand before you that it's Christ I need to imitate. And that the happiness that I find is in rejoicing in his greatness. I pray that you also will find these things as you begin to really meditate on on imitating Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you 
humbled at your word. We know that our lives are in constant uh, correction. Why we still think that this world and the flesh can make us happy and rejoice. Lord, I pray that your work of your spirit will be done in us with great power, with resurrection power, that we may know our Lord Jesus Christ in an intimate way because of that power, and that our only hope and work will be to imitate you, Lord. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.